Screen Drafts, a podcast <laughs> where experts and enthusiasts competitively collaborate in creation of screen-centric best-of uh, lists. I am your host, Clay Keller, and joined by, as always, my uh, commissioner and color commentator, Ryan Marker. Ryan, I gotta ask you, have you yeah, ever... Have you ever turned a former coworker oh. into a llama as a sort of retaliation for their hand in a wrongful termination? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm not going to say I've done that. All right, I'm done with this. I'm done with this ruse. All right, so uh, just just to Bethy, that is about how far Ryan gets into the bit every time as well. <laughs> uh, all right, so... You you are actually listening to Watching Movies at the Bar. Tonight we're going to be talking about Emperor's New Groove, uh, and we are so excited to be Booyah! joined by... What was that? I said Booyah. Booyah, right, yes, a, a, a reference to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are so excited to be joined by uh, Clay Keller. Clay, welcome. Uh, hey, what's up, guys? Bethy Thomas, good to Hello. see both of you. I'm Bethy. How's I'm not Ryan. not Ryan. It was Ryan. an elaborate charade. <laughs> uh, if if you Ooh. were not able to deduce as much, if you don't already listen, Clay is a an extremely talented writer and filmmaker, but most notably uh, the host, one of two hosts of Screen Drafts, which is far and away my favorite, most listened to podcast. Clay is also Aww. a dear friend, so we are thrilled to have him on tonight. Aw, thank you. I feel so welcome. And then Bethy, the most important person on the podcast, not Ryan tonight. Again, I'm just a really good actor. I embodied the part. Um, you know, I did a lot of yeah. prep. I shadowed Ryan for a little bit. Just tried to get into that headspace. Uh, I'm drinking whiskey and soda. What's everyone else drinking? Well, uh, I am as well, Bethy. As I was gonna say, your Ryan was so convincing. I'm a little bit worried that if you ever have him on the show, it's going to put Thomas in in kind of a of a situation like Michael Bay's <laughs> The Island, where he's going to have to decide which one of you to kill. Mm. That's a good. That might be a good movie for this. He show. can kill me. That's fine. <laughs> Beth, I don't. Uh, Bethy volunteers. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to kill either of you. I love Bethy. I love Ryan. On top of all of that. I, I love Clay. That's not how Michael Bay does it, but that's yeah, that's fine. That's yeah, your, that, I don't know if I want to watch The Island. Oh, man. But The Island is... I've okay. seen parts of the Clonus Horror, so I feel like I got it. See, I have not seen the Clonus Horror, but I, I ought to. I ought to. It's on it's, YouTube, ms From what I understand, yeah. The Island is a complete ripoff. Uh, Bethy, I'm having a whiskey and ginger ale. Okay. Which is one of my go-tos when I am at uh, a public house. Thomas, what you got? Thomas, what are you drinking? I am drinking a White Claw. Uh, my girlfriend was in yeah. Palm Springs last weekend. They came back uh, with a beautiful gift to me, which were the <laughs> five remaining cans of White Claw. So I'm starting with that tonight. And then I have got uh, my 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 uh, watching movies at the bar standard, my Cutwater canned margarita on deck, because I think... I think this is going to be a fun conversation, and I want to be ready for that. I swan to John, if we don't get sponsored by Cutwater eventually... You know, it has to happen. We are so diligent <laughs> in name checking them because they make a good product. I'm a big fan of their Paloma, their canned Paloma. Oh. Uh, you like the Margs. It's not, it's no bullshit. Cutwater, don't only sponsor watching movies at the bar, uh, but as I think as Thomas was about to say, feel free to use uh, the tagline Beth Bethy just gave you, which was <laughs> Cutwater's no bullshit. 
I think that's already a sponsored line for Kind Bars from Who Weekly, because that's what uh, one of the hosts of Who Weekly's mom said of them. So <laughs> I think that's already been taken. So I'll, 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 okay, another one. Uh, cut water, canned cocktails. Hey, they'll get you there. How about that? What about, uh, Honest. what about cut water? Right. <laughs> Right. Oh, right. 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 Uh. Clay. Yeah, what's up, man? There's a question Bethy loves to ask at the top of this show to our guests, and so I'm setting the stage for that. I'm here for you guys. So, Clay, what is your experience with watching movies at bars, with talking about movies at bars? Are you a Mm -hmm. guy who who seeks out, like, a... To post up and watch a Planet Earth or a silent movie, or do you prefer to watch a movie and then go to the bar and chat about it? Well, I think that that really that question is why I am the ideal person for this show because I do not believe I have ever watched a movie at a bar. Oh dang! <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that. And when you when you guys uh, when you told me about the premise of the show way back when. I was like, well, that's fun. And I know people do. I, I I understand the concept of watching a movie at a bar, but do people really do that? And then I've listened to your episodes, and apparently people do reliably <laughs> just sit at bars and watch movies, which is fantastic. I love to hear it. But I um, I don't really, but I'm also not a big bar guy. I think just as a function of the fact that I don't live near a good like a great bar. I don't live within three blocks walking distance of like a, a great bar. I'm sure that if I did, I would very quickly become a barfly, but um, I'm also very responsible, and I don't want to drive, mm-hmm. you know, home from a bar uh, after three, four drinks, so I don't bar that much. I'll sometimes drive into Hollywood uh, and hang out with uh, with our good pal Tom here, uh, or, or yourself, Bethy. We go to, you know, we've we've uh, frequented uh, Jimmy Buffett's establishment a, a handful of times <laughs> together. Um one of the great bars. But they One don't play the great movies. Bars. They just play compilations of his of Mr. Buffett's incredible music videos. That's true. I was going to say I have spent more time sitting at the bar at Margaritaville watching uh, his uh, concert m- music video uh, with um, uh, oh no, dancing on the ceiling. What's his <laughs> name? Lionel Richie. The guy who sings that. Uh, he's got a great music video uh, with another great guy that plays. But I've seen that many times. Maybe that's what this sh- episode should have been about is Jimmy <laughs> Buffett music videos because that's really what I've watched at bars. But no, uh, I love to talk about a movie at a bar. Thomas knows this uh, and you do as well, Bethy. So that's really more my in on this. The The most movie stuff I see in a bar is, is and I told Thomas this when we were trying to come up with a film to watch, is is when I hear this topic, what my mind immediately goes to, obviously you guys have talked about Jay's Bar on the show before and how they play like TCM movies. And the, mm-hmm. the like fun thing there is trying to figure out what the movie is. But the most stuff I see at bars is, you know, the the channels that also play sports just when they are in the movie time of day. So it's a <laughs> yeah. lot of just like, uh, bad studio movies from, you know, 2002 to 2017 playing on FX or TNT or TBS. Like, I've seen a lot of uh, the Alexander Skarsgård's, like, Tarzan movie <laughs> in bits and pieces. It was, Dude. like, motion smoothing on. Like, that. that is what I think of when I think of watching a movie at a bar. Have you listened to... Maybe this episode hasn't aired yet. We has. recently recorded... 
and we were talking to Patrick Bryce about I, I I had watched the Alexander Skarsgård Tarzan movie on the wall at Ye Rustic, so that that movie's got a real bar legacy. I watched it at um over, over under in downtown Burbank. Oh, nice. Yeah, Clay uh, Clay and I have been frequenting over under uh, at least once a week to see all of the Fast and the Furious movies leading up to F nine. <laughs> so. That's the new spot. That's the new DTB spot. O- o- over under. I don't know that one. I'm excited. So anyway, that's my bar thing. That's my, like, I feel like uh, I'm not an ideal guest for this, other than the fact that we all enjoy each other's company, because I'm not really a, a a bar guy. I don't have, I was so, I was so, I felt so inadequate listening to uh, Riley's episode, because he had this, like, epic tale <laughs> of watching movies at bars. It's like, oh my god, they they found the prototypical guest, like, two episodes in. I'm not going to be able to bring this heat, but... I'm here now, so deal with it. <laughs> You're here, and we're thrilled to have you. And the Riley thing wasn't planned. And I, I really do, I should say, and, and I don't, I hope this isn't blowing our cover, watching movies at the bar is a podcast that can accommodate any title. At least one of the three categories we use is, is pretty nebulous. There like, are it, some it, that I feel like don't fit. I think there are movies that don't fit. Derek Jarman's Wittgenstein? I don't know what they are, but I know that they exist. It's an unknown unknown, but it's out there. Yeah. You'll know it when you see it. Uh, we will not be talking about a Serbian film on this podcast. <laughs> uh, n- uh, 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 until I go to a bar and demand that they play it, just so that I can force you guys out. I have, I have evidence. This has happened. <laughs> but your, your, your three things are movies you uh, – set in bars, movies that uh, often will play in the bar, right, or movies that you want to talk about. I believe, Thomas, as you say, after a few drinks. In the bar. Yeah, those are, those are the three categories. And my fourth heat that I wanted to introduce, because all of the other titles that I recommended that I put up as possibilities except for this one fell into my, which I already sort of touched on, my preferred bar movies definition, which is those uh, movies that play in motion smoothing that (laughs) you forgot existed that TNT got on the cheap. Which I would, I think that that is every time you guys ask me to come back, I'm really going to continue pushing salt and U.S. Marshals on you, and it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna happen at some time. It's gonna I happen. would actually, I would love to have you on for U.S. Marshals. I um, I spared Bethy that one because we, when you and I were talking about it, there was some movie we just watched, some meathead shit that Bethy didn't really like, and I was like, okay, it can't be another big macho American man movie. But See, I thought, I thought the reason that we picked this particular movie, which, by the way, like 15 minutes in, is Emperor's New Groove, uh, was because I had never seen it, and Clay was outra- outraged was by that information. <laughs> I was incensed. You know, I've, I also, I've often thought that more bars should put on Disney Channel or Nickelodeon or something on their televisions. I feel like... Uh, drinking age millennials would uh, oh, eat that time. shit up with a spoon. And those are also fun just to, <laughs> if you have them on mute, just to try and figure out. Like if I'm at a bar and an episode of Dog with a with a Blog is playing on the television, I feel like that would be so fun to three drinks in with someone else trying to figure out what the fuck they're saying, what's going on in a in a show like that. Um and also, is the Dog with ones. a Blog is that a, is that a Disney show? It was. That one it was. was. Oh, are you unfamiliar with Dog with a Blog? 
I've heard the title, but I didn't know where that aired. I, I uh, Two days ago, maybe, I was... So I do a thing sometimes where I'm holding my phone and I have the dumbest idea you can imagine. Just the dumbest, the dumbest thought in my head. I type it in the stupidest way that I can think of in three to five seconds. I'm not going to give it more attention than that. Right. But I tweeted the words... Good. I'm paraphrasing, but I think I just tweeted like, "Good idea for movie is dog who get perfect score on the SAT." Right. And for whatever fucking reason, Annapurna's account retweeted it. <laughs> They're like two hundred thousand <laughs> followers, and then there was one person who was like, "Dog with a blog," um, and I felt like a hack. It's no longer an original idea. Well, to be fair, I, I look. I've seen all of maybe nine minutes of dog with a blog. So I couldn't tell you for sure that the dog doesn't take the SATs and get a perfect score at some point, but I don't think that's what the show is primarily about. I think it's more set in a middle school. I I, I don't know if the dog ever, <laughs> ever made it to trying to getting into, uh, to, to colleges. I think somebody else suggested that that's also the plot of the shaggy DA, which fits into the live action Disney movies that, ex- that, are sort of similar to these movies that Time Forgot that play on TNT. It's just like these yeah. movies that in theory exist, but I mean, there's promotional stills. So. I want to watch the Apple Dumpling Gang at a bar. If bars were playing <laughs> stuff like that, maybe I would go more. Uh, when I get remote privileges, I will put on like a million dollar duck or something like that. Um, yeah. I'm persnickety. That's the other thing I'm fucking jealous of. So I, yeah, I got some fucking bones to pick. Bethy talked about how she like rolls into bars like she fucking owns the place and they just give her the remote <laughs> and she gets to like rule the roost. I'm like, ah, I am so jealous of, I do not have that relationship with any proprietor of any Clay, uh, that's the only relationship that I cultivate with places. <laughs> I need them to like me. It's really important. It's the only thing that gives me validation in this cockamamie world you know like my career could be in the shitter or uh i could feel bad about uh, my body i don't know what things are that i should feel bad about but they're out there i'm sure uh but as long as uh service staff find me charming and helpful in the way that i make myself (laughs) small when i need to be because they're busy then that's all i need that's it's a huge so, so what I'm saying is that you could have that too if you had, for some reason, invested a lot of self worth in that pursuit, like I have. <laughs> I mean, I do invest a lot of time in trying to be uh, an easy customer because I did. I have spent a lot of my life up until a couple years ago in customer service jobs, so I'm well aware of uh, how much pain in the ass literally everyone is. <laughs> so I try to, I try to be cool, but um, yeah, going. Going back to me being mad at Bethy for three reasons ago. <laughs> um, yeah, I was listening. I think it was the Riley episode. It may have been the the Scream 2 episode with Scollins. I think it was the Riley episode where, Thomas, you uh, v- very uh, cleverly referenced the Emperor's New Groove, I think expecting a reaction that you ought you absolutely deserved, and it just fell on deaf ears, and there was almost a crickets moment where you, honestly, uh, your editor probably should have cut it out because it ended up being embarrassing, <laughs> but you made this great <laughs> reference, and Bethy and Riley gave you nothing, and I was just like, what is going on? Look, what is Clay, happening? If, you, if, 
If you think that's the only embarrassing moment I've had on this podcast that Colin should have edited out, <laughs> you are not an attentive listener, man, or you're just a really good friend. To be fair to Colin, he also hadn't seen Emperor, Emperor's New Groove until Unreal. then. Thomas, no. so th- do you not screen your potential podcast co-hosts? I don't. What 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 is happening? But so Look, I, it, it I goes came to two ways. Bethy didn't yeah. Bethy didn't screen me, so I, <laughs> I I felt no obligation to screen Bethy. I come to the conclusion that Bethy just must not have seen the Emperor's New Groove, uh, and then that turned out to be true. Even though Bethy, uh, so my question for you is: I know you're a big parks person. Are 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 you not a Disney film completist, or did this one just just fall through the cracks i would say not only am i not a disney film completist i'm not a disney film fan per se i don't particularly give a shit about the media that disney puts out uh i i have two i'm a theme park head and then i'm a super stand for the disney corporate structure and their business machinations, because that's the soap (laughs) opera that we all need to be paying attention to sure that's some gnarly hot goss that I love and love to not shut up about. Right. But the actual media, eh, I can take or leave. I don't really care. This this movie as just a, 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 a thing exists at a perfect intersection of quality Disney media and the absurd corporate structure <laughs> and bureaucracy as evidenced by the companion piece, which we'll be discussing quite a bit tonight, which is a documentary called The Sweatbox, which was directed by Sting's wife, uh, whose name is... Trudy Styler. Incredible name. Who was a guest star on The Nanny. Incredible name. So when when Allers, who had directed Lion King and was was attached to this project, which was then called Kingdom of the Sun, reached out to Sting wanting him to do music... Sting said sure, but one of the stipulations was that his partner, a filmmaker, be allowed to document the proceedings. And initially, Disney gave this production their blessing, but the (laughs) product that came out the other end was very different than the product conceived, and all of the drama along the way made for a decidedly unflattering documentary, but one that is fascinating and yields incredible insight into an often impenetrable um, corporation. So I'm I'm really excited to talk about all this shit. Hell yeah, me too. I love I love this shit, Bethy. I, I this is driving me nuts. Did you like <laughs> this movie? I can't wait any longer to find out if you enjoyed the Emperor's yeah, Groove. Yeah, okay. I liked it. It was interesting because it didn't feel like a Disney movie. It felt like a Looney Tunes movie. It felt like it had been influenced by Shrek, like they were scrambling to compete with Shrek. But this is pre Shrek, so it's like really wild that it feels like. It feels yeah. post Shrek, but it is pre Shrek. It feels post Family Guy too, but I think at, I think it is concurrent with the first season of Family Guy. Pretty much, it it is. It, and the fact that it doesn't feel like a Disney movie was a, an intentional play on the part of the executives. Mark Dindle, who came on as a co-director with Allers, had most recently directed Cats Don't Dance, which is not a Disney film, big box office success, and it had a whimsy that they thought would be a a meaningful counterpoint to the seriousness of movies like Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame, which had uh, smaller box office returns than they wanted at the time. So they intended to veer away from the traditional Disney mode. The problem is they didn't really tell Allers that, uh, and so he invested years of his life in a movie that they ultimately had no intention of making. And to be fair, a little bit, like, I think they probably would have wanted to make 
Ehlers movie if if that had gelled together. Like, they were definitely wanting to lean into punching it up, but it was, like, a couple different things happened in Disney at the same time. Like, when they were working on Emperor's New Groove, uh, Katzenberg had already left and was starting to found DreamWorks, and he poached, I don't know, 30% of the creative staff of Disney Animation. Uh, so they were down, like, a third of their guys, and then the people who were left got huge bonuses for staying. So all of a sudden, they really had to, like, prove their worth because the company had sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars in retaining them. And then also, at the same time, uh, Michael Eisner was purchasing Go.com, which he thought was going to be the yeah. the new browser. He thought it would be Google. Uh, but everybody was like, hey, don't buy this because you don't have internet guys. And he was like, nah, it'll be fine. They said that about, they said that about don't buy hotels because we don't have hotel guys. And they said, don't buy, uh, don't buy a, don't buy a Broadway theater because we don't have Broadway guys. We found them. We'll do the same with the internet. No. Go.com was a huge money loss they had to write off. So Disney was close to being in the hole during Emperor's, Emperor's New Groove. So they were like, truly shitting bricks trying to figure out how to make money (laughs) any money (laughs) at the time and the other thing that makes this movie really weird i found this out uh today where i was reading a oral history of the movie that was on vulture is that it was like they didn't have a script per se but they also didn't have storyboards Like, this was a movie that was written by writers who had previously worked in TV. It was about lines. It was about dialogue in a way that no Disney movie before this had ever been done. Disney movies until this point were all board driven. Like, the the script was written by the animators after they drew little pictures about it. Katzenberg, Eisner, all of them tried really hard to get Disney onto a script like, let's start with a script place. But it just was resisted and resisted until Emperor's New Groove, where they had to throw away the script. But uh, Happy Meal toys still needed to come out. So it was like, oh, uh, just write, just write whatever. And so basically the punch-up room wrote this movie. And that's bazonkers. Yeah, totally. And, and, and all of this speaks to the utter marvel it is that this movie works at all. But I would argue that not only does it work, it is... Far and away one of my favorite Disney animated films. I think it is one of the very funniest, in my opinion, maybe the funniest. But there's less about what I think and more about Clay. So, Clay, you said that you picked this movie because Bethy hadn't seen it because of that deeply embarrassing moment for me on the podcast. But what that omits is that you are a huge fan of this movie. So tell us a little bit about your relationship and and why you chose it. I am a huge fan of this movie. And I, I think it's because it came out right at the right time for me it came out what 2000 so i was 12 oh uh, i was 27 uh, at the time. uh yeah thomas was 27 <laughs> thomas was 27 um yeah i was 12 so i was right on in that sort of period where you're going from you know really children's oriented stuff and you're starting to kind of see the things that are going to form the basis of your uh, you know, sensibility, some say your personality, your sense of humor going forward. I mean, this is right around the same time I discovered, you know, reruns of Late Night with Conan O'Brien, reruns of Saturday Night Live on E! Like, this was when I was really kind of becoming who I was going to be as an adult. And this movie just happened to be, you know, it's a Disney movie, and we were a Disney family. We had all of the fucking clamshell boxes, so everything. We saw the new ones that came out. 
So we were going to go see this, uh, of course, and I think it just um, happened to be, for all the reason you guys said, I mean, it was written by real comedy writers. And so it had this sensibility coming out of television, which is what I was kind of picking up on at the time. And it just it just hit super hard. You know, I went and saw it because it was a, a Disney movie. Actually, I kind of stopped seeing, you know, right after this, I hit 13, 14. There's a, there's a dead zone of animated movies that I kind of just have never seen. The Home on the Range, Chicken Little, you know, that, that kind of <laughs> stuff. I did Shrek 3. I think I've only seen the first two Shrek movies. But there is a, yeah, there's a dead zone where I just stopped watching. That's why I stopped watching cartoons on television as well. So I'm glad that this movie came out when it did because it's entirely possible if it had come out six, seven months later, I would have, I would have completely missed it. But, um, I just thought it was fucking hilarious. And then I continued to think it was hilarious. You know, it got the DVD, would revisit it. The only animated Disney animated film I would ever revisit in, you know, my high school years. And it was something that right. I, when I got to college, it was one of those ones where um, this movie wasn't a big hit. Uh, and by that time, it was more known for, I guess, being the basis of the television series that was on the air. And a lot of people I knew in college hadn't seen it. So it was, I would be like, you know, I would get people uh, around the television and throw on this, you know, G rated <laughs> Disney movie <laughs> that came out when we were, you know, 11, 12 years old. And I'd make people watch it. And it just went over like gangbusters because it is just very funny. It's, right. it's, as Bethy said, it is so dialogue driven in a way that no other Disney movie is. And not only is it dialogue driven, it has throwaway jokes. It has under the breath. It has jokes. It has tossaways. Like, what other animated movie has tossaway dialogue jokes? I mean, because the process, and you, if you watch any behind the scenes shit for like Pixar, that process, you know, is kind of born out of the original animation process, with which which Bethy was just talking about, is so planned, so meticulous, so. Um, everything is labored over until you have the exact right line, the exact right intonation. And this movie feels like such a wild west, like wacky production that I feel like they snuck through a lot of stuff that you'd never really seen in a studio animated movie before uh, or since. I think it's kind of really a, a unique film still to this day. Yeah, I think everything about Emperor's New Groove's production points to disaster and for some reason that was averted and and you make a really interesting point that the movie feels in some ways with a lot of the dialogue like it's flying by the seat of its pants like it's borderline improvisational a lot of it was cooked up quickly by people who are very funny but who are writing fast i mean it's a movie that once they had settled on what it was finally after this you know four years of development they had a year and a half to deliver the movie because of existing you know uh like promotional deals uh with brands and so the movie really was made basically in a period of 18 months um which should mean it's bad but it's great and also the the thing you said about throwaway jokes there's something in this movie i had never heard before but at Cusco's funeral Kronk is like weeping just weeping and you've got this wide shot that's slowly zooming in and he's weeping and you hear him a little bit buried in the mix mumbling things and uh when Isma says or, or when they say he died just barely at the age of 18 Kronk goes <laughs> he never had a chance <laughs> and I'd never heard that before but it's so funny Patrick Warburton is so this. funny all of those little lines fucking kill me I mean Kronk is one of the great movie idiots like truly, and it it, it makes all the sense in the world that 
the directed to video sequel is called Kronk's New Groove. And then, <laughs> you know, uh, Kronk is just the, the the character. I mean, all the characters, I think, in this movie are actually kind of great. But Kronk is just so fucking funny. I mean, he is the – it's like watching – Arrested Development for the first time, and, and like Will Arnett, he is like he is the Job of of this movie, and just local magician fucking, Gob. Yeah, every fucking thing he says is hysterical. Uh, and, and I believe what it was, uh, Bethy, you'll appreciate this, and actually, you'll probably know this better than I will, and you'll correct me. But I I want to say the reason Patrick Warburton got the gig on Soaring Over California as the uh, guy playing the, um, uh, you know, steward. Captain? Uh, he's the captain, but he's also, like, giving you the rundown. Yeah, he's just kind of the all-purpose guy on that, on that he show. He tells you to put your Mickey Mouse ears uh, under ahead, the, put those the little chair, guys these little beauties. There. Yeah, yeah, put yeah, those little beauties. Hey, I'm Captain Patrick. Um, <laughs> be, because they were looking for somebody, and they, and they, were, make, they were making emperor's new groove at the time uh, and they and their cohorts in in the studio were like oh we've got this guy in re- recording now and he's perfect like you should you should you i should don't actually out. know for sure how patrick warburton got on soren but i believe that i we we went to disneyland two days ago and i didn't get to go on soren but i did go on star tours where there's a pitched up warburton who is the the security droid who's like checking he's not checking luggage he's like He's telling you that you look like uh, you could be a shapeshifter, and how would I ever know? He's like chatting with guys, uh, <laughs> and then he, oh, he's also <laughs> he's also in this insane uh, special that they did to to preview Disney California Adventure when it first opened, uh, where it's the stars of Spin City. No, not Michael J. Fox. it's it's um richard kind and barry bostwick and they have been invited to go meet michael eisner at disney california adventure and they keep running away from their like tour guide security guards who are played by colin mockery and brad sherwood (laughs) from whose line is it anyway and so they just keep going like they keep running through the park sort of like a hard day's night style evading these uh who's line security guards and at one point patrick warburton just like bullies them into going on soren he's like you're going on this ride <laughs> and they're like scared <laughs> that he's gonna beat them up anyway i love patrick warburton so much he's he's too good and honestly this uh, yeah this the 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 type of jokes the joke structure and the physical comedy like even if they were even if they were animating on the fly for this like fucking all the credit in the world because there's some really really funny subtle physical comedy in this and some some uh expressions and gestures that uh are absolutely perfect and fit with the tone and the sensibility of this movie uh just i think i, I was worried because i hadn't seen this in like 4 or 5 years even though I could recite probably all of it. And I I suggested it for this show. And then I was watching it just earlier this afternoon. And I was like, ah, is this like, is this like, is this going to be the time when I realize like this isn't as nonstop great as I always, you know, told people it was. Uh, And it just kind of is. It just kind of, it kind (laughs) of all works and it's super fucking funny. And we could we could burn a whole podcast just saying our favorite lines, which is kind of one of the great <laughs> one of the great movie discussion activities at the bar is just recounting favorite lines. Um, 
But uh, the emotional stuff lands too, even though it is always such a swift transition. It is always just like, now it's an emotional scene. But the way that the, the voice performances are so good and the way that the script is attuned and the score by David Denby is, is, is so good. It just, all that stuff lands. It just, it is a tight, really effective, uh, good movie that in the end won over uh, even the harshest of critics. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Sting himself. <laughs> Sting was one over. Yeah, I um I loved this movie as a kid. It was a movie that I revisited a lot on VHS. Um but I hadn't watched it I don't think in 10 years if not more and so I went into it pretty confident I liked it, not entirely sure. And it kicked my ass. And something I realized that I had no concept of watching it as a kid is that it borrows from one of my favorite comedic genres, which is it's like a buddy road movie. It's yeah. like Planes, Trains, or Tommy Boy, or Midnight Run. I mean, Tommy Boy specifically because David Spade is in a similar mode. But um, David Spade making fun of an overweight guy for an entire yeah. movie. Yeah, and David Spade <laughs> is really good at that. Look, I will say there are movies David Spade has made in his career that I don't like, but I think that when he is what cast, a name mission. one! Oh my I dare god! You. All right, <laughs> fuck you guys. I like them all, but. Um, <laughs> He's he's so perfectly cast in this movie. I think I think David Spain is best Spain. <laughs> David Spade is best when he is uh just sort of childish and narcissistic but also has some amount of power and this movie is a perfect vehicle for that. Yeah. So I I think this is actually a movie that many of our listeners may not have seen before and they're going to be curious what we think about it because it is a lesser Disney hit and Bethy having not seen it means that other people surely have not seen it. So Clay, do you want to tell people what Emperor's New Groove is just as a flyover? Uh, Sure, yeah. So Emperor's New Groove came out in 2000. We're going to talk about its troubled production history. We've touched on it a little bit uh, already. But it is about Cusco, who is this child emperor, uh, played by David Spade, who's just a real shit. Uh, <laughs> Eartha Kitt gives one of the great voice performances of all time as his uh, ancient advisor, who is incredibly jealous of his power and uh, def- and hates him and wants him out of the way. She's got a boy toy uh, named Kronk, <laughs> who is... I never the, the, the of all the crazy scenes in this the scene at when they're making small talk at dinner at the beginning and they're talking about Kronk and Cusco's like so what is he late twenties <laughs> she's like I'm really not sure like the whole concept of Kronk is so bizarre to have in a Disney movie <laughs> um, Cusco brings a uh you know um sort of this like head of this small village within his kingdom sort of the like town mayor uh pacha who's a um farmer and llama herder llama shepherd played by shepherd seems very much specific to sheep can you shepherd a llama i suppose so he's a llama shepherd he's a llamard and uh brings him in and he says hey uh, I like your town. Your town's great. I'm gonna destroy it and put my <laughs> and put my summer town, my uh, summer house there. And, and then instead of uh, killing Cusco, which is Isma's plan, uh, Kronk accidentally uses the wrong potion and turns him into a llama. And uh, through a series of of h- h- hilarious coincidences, uh, the the llama emperor ends up on the road being protected by Pacha, and they have to come 
to uh, to a uh, you know uh, an agreement, a consensus uh, to 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 work together to survive the the elements, survive Isma and Kronk trying to get what they want. Uh, and it's 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 a hoot, as you said, Thomas. It's a great buddy road movie. It's a great. I love any movie that takes people who are on. Uh, opposing sides and makes them work together find their common ground and it's a simple message about and they say this <laughs> a lot in the sweatbox in the original version of the story you know it's about a a a simple man an everyday guy teaching uh a, a um self-centered emperor how to be a good leader and they retain that very simple thing throughout the all of the development all of the changes everything to the end product about uh, a, a, uh, a good guy, you know, a family man, an unambitious guy, uh, teaching this, this, this awful self-centered, uh, selfish person, how to be a friend, how to be empathetic. Uh, and then they end up, you know, uh, being, be, becoming friends at the end, which is a really, and we'll get to this. I, I don't know if we go through beat by beat, uh, of the movie necessarily, but by the end of this movie as for as funny and, and wacky and nonstop and, and screwball as it is, uh, when it got to the end moments, I teared up because even though it's not Pixar and it doesn't have Giacchino <laughs> going to town, going to town on you while characters are dying, you know, it, um, it, it it delivers this really lovely, simple, elemental message in an effective way, and and I, I miss that. I, I I think animated movies are a little bit too emotionally clever for their own good now, perhaps. Uh, and and there's something charming about a movie that's just trying to be funny and entertaining and simple and, and de- delivering on that. Uh, and and I love this movie. That's what the movie is is about. It's about it's about a llama. And John Goodman going on an adventure. Closely followed by... It's funny because it's it's almost like two buddy movies happening on top of each other. Right. Because you have the Yzma and Kronk pair sort of just behind them. And they're never like, sure, sure, Yzma wants to murder the lead character. And I I bet we don't like that. (laughs) But their vibe is also super fun. And so you have... You have the the a plot of the 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 simple man teaching an arrogant ruler how to be a leader, and then you have the b plot, which uh, I saw a TikTok describe as like <laughs> as a drag queen and her emotional support himbo just going on a road trip together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it very it very much is that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of that dumb and dumber thing where you've got like the one pair pursuing the other pair. Although I think dumb and dumber has maybe less of a catharsis. Um, I'm with you, Clay. I was very moved by their little summer hangout at the end, where they go down water slides and they love each other. Which Sting hated. Which was Sting's pitch. Which was Sting's idea. Right. I fucking love that. And Sting, Sting was right. So they allude to this in the Sweatbox, but um, Sting wrote this really extensive letter when he watched an early storyboard assembly of the movie. So basically, Cusco, instead of displacing Pacha and his family, demolishes a rainforest <laughs> and puts and, and puts his his amusement park there. And Sting watches it, jaw on the floor. And writes this extended letter, and there's there's a passage that's not in the sweatbox where Sting says, I have spent three decades 
fighting on behalf of indigenous people and their homes and you're really going to end this movie by just sort of obliterating this ecosystem and the people who live there and there's this really funny scene in the sweatbox where they're like yeah, you know, we read Sting's letter and we did think you guys he see Sting's letter. It's actually points. really yeah, good. Yeah. It's like it has Peter Schneider saying it. It's like, did you read Sting's letter? It's yeah. actually a good note. <laughs> it's actually a good note. And it's beautiful. And then the way they do it in the movie where they have it's 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 the the misdirect where they have uh, you know, Cuscotopia pull out. It's it's a bird it's a little bird bath and then he is just he is just bought a, uh, I guess, I don't know, assumed ownership of a hut next to Potch and his family, and they're hanging out at the natural wa- wa- watering hole. It's it's lovely. Did you, um, did either of you read up more of a plot summary of, of what what uh, Kingdom of the Sun was originally yeah. about? I did, I did no additional research beyond rewatching the sweatbox. So if you guys read like oral histories and stuff, uh, uh, I'm, I am fascinated to hear about it. I mean, sweatbox is pretty comprehensive, but yeah, Bethy, go ahead. Kingdom of the Sun was originally going to be a much more sprawling tale. So like, I think it starts with the Incan creation myth. It sort of like briefly mentions that like the only reason that earth is hospitable is because a god lassoed a star and brought it closer to us to warm us and then it it goes to this sort of either prince in the pauper or prisoner of zenda plot however you want to see it of um of pacha this time is an exact double of kuzco although I, he's called something else he's called the japanese word for pussy manko manko it's manko and pacha yeah oh, wait that's true or were you yeah. just doing the joke no, that it's, is it's true. the c word it's the c word oh man i thought in the sweatbox when spade said that that was just like a really like lowest <laughs> common denominator joke that he made up that was <laughs> no the joke spade was making was that he thought he was in a bad movie which is pretty <laughs> illuminating but sorry <laughs> bethy continue I, I gotta hear this i mean this is like a huge like We'll get back to to the interviews of Spade. So, and then it goes into this plot where where um, Pacha, played by Owen Wilson, is like a double of the Emperor, and they switch places. But what they don't know when they switch places is that the evil adv- advisor, same character, basically Isma, wants to kill the Emperor and extinguish the sun and bring back zombies just like revive the dead she's like this arch sorceress and there's this like cool she gets a cool villain song and i feel bad for all of the disney gays who were denied a drag opportunity with that (laughs) villain song like i weep for them but she wants to kill the sun because it ages her essentially like she wants to stay young and beautiful forever so when she'll kill the sun she'll no longer get sun damage she'll become young and beautiful and also bring back the dead to walk the earth I also, sorry, I just want to say as a quick aside, Andreas Deha, who designed the Yzma character and ultimately walked away from the sillier version of the film because he, like, revered her, um, he said that he modeled that character off of women in Beverly Hills oh, yeah. who clearly have lost their youth, who have been aged dramatically by the sun, but are are just sort of desperate to return to that. And that was such a demented admission, but also made me laugh. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> Um, and so, and there's no Kronk. Instead, there's a, a Harvey Firestein voiced character who is like an Olmec statue, like from the previous civilization of that same area, uh, who is the, f- the first bureaucrat. He's like a prehistoric bureaucrat. And so he's like the, the side character in that. 
the rest of it kind of follows Prisoner of Zenda rules where there's, you know, swashbuckling, uh, a woman played by Carla Gugino falls in love with Owen Wilson's version of the Emperor. Uh, I think David Spade still gets turned into a llama. Yeah, Isma turns him into a llama to get him out of the way, and she leverages the knowledge that Pacha is an imposter to basically make him fall in line with her plan. Yeah. And then I I don't know how it resolved, and I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> it was like right. it was the third act problems were significant. Uh, oh, but no, it did end with them having to re lasso the sun and bring it back. I kind of would love to see that movie with the tone of Lion King, something that like has a greater sense of import. It still has silliness. It's still for children. That sounds like an epic to me. But not at the expense of the Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, that that is fascinating. But it does sound, and we see this in, in the sweatbox, that it is just <laughs> quite simply too many things happening in the movie to corral. Mm-hmm. We're going to be, I think, moving back and forth between Emperor's New Groove and the sweatbox. But after that initial version, they had created their storyboard assembly. That was the story they were going with. And they presented it to the Disney execs. After years. That is... The animation gestation process is fucking fascinating to me. They're working on, it is two years, and Sting is where, that's what I love about the Sweatbox also, is it's so Sting-centric. You really get a good look in, glimpse into what, you know, songwriters do on these movies, which I think is something other making of documentaries, you know, will just treat as kind of a little bit in the last ten minutes of the of the thing. But yeah, after like a year and a half, two years of development on this movie, they're they're got a team making characters. Yeah, Thomas, like you were about to say, they go in and like that would be devastating. It would be devastating. <laughs> and the way one of the execs quotes Allers in describing what that experience is like, with my single favorite quote in the entire documentary. So oh, yeah. the entire <laughs> so the entire documentary is 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 very dark. It is very much a peek behind the curtain. You see how fraught these processes are and, and how heartbreaking it is for these animators who pour an inordinate amount of time to bring their vision to life only to have it gutted, never to see the light of day. But the way that Allers describes this screening process at the beginning before they're told to retool and and change directions, he says it's like your hands are violently hacked off in front of an audience. Your pants are then pulled down and you are bleeding profusely from these stumps where your hands once were with no hands to pull your pants back up. And that is just fucking gruesome and crazy. But also, like, yeah, it makes sense. Um, I have a quote from that oral history of the moment they found out that they were, like, dramatically changing it. This is from Steve Anderson, who I think was a board artist. Uh, But he said... We all left the theater that we have on the first floor in feature animation. We marched up to the storeroom on the third floor. They had tables set up in a big square. Everybody took their place. Tom Schumacher and Peter Schneider, the heads of the studio, came in, sat down, closed the door. Tom said, We just want to thank everyone for their work on the screening, and we'd like to ask you to leave now. We want to talk with (laughs) Mark and Roger. Next thing we know, Roger's whole vision was in question, and the movie's future as well. So, like, that's where the movie starts is, like, with all of the people, like, whispering rumors of what they think is going on in that meeting. 
where where Tom and Peter are talking to the directors, Mark and Roger. Can't overstate how great the sweat box is. We're not going to blow up its spot as to where we watched it, but if you send us a message on Instagram, Twitter, we'll be happy to hook you up. But um, so so Allers had been incubating this vision, which was his dream project for years, and after this failed screening, the executives tasked the entire team with uh, preparing for a bake-off. And there were four different versions of the movie that were pitched, and they just picked the one they liked the most. And, like, I cannot imagine, if you're so excited about this project, if you've been given nothing but positive feedback, being gassed up in the wake of The Lion King, and then suddenly it's all ripped out from under you. That sounds like a fucking nightmare. There's some incredible shots of Roger Allers uh, at the Santa Monica beach staring out uh, at the ocean that are Ben Affleck with the towel around his waist and yes. his arms behind his back level, just like staring out at, into the abyss uh, that just break your heart Poor he seems like such a, such a nice man. <laughs> I, I feel for him. He gets never destroyed in this thing. He's never a dickhead in the documentary and the filmmaker has the opportunity to make him seem like an asshole. And he just doesn't, he doesn't seem so bad. He really is just heartbroken. And he says that the day before he lost the movie, um, as conceived, he he moved his daughter into college. And so there was that, like, tragic farewell. And then the next day, he says goodbye to his other child. I I believe that he felt that way. It's just, it's a, it, 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 is, it is a brutal, brutal process. And then the documentary every 10 minutes cuts to staying wherever he is. <laughs> He's always in a different international uh, a location. A fucking castle with the wildest <laughs> vista you've ever seen. Just like riding horses up a mountain <laughs> with his co-writer because he feels like they need to do some bonding this week so they're going to ride horses up a mountain. <laughs> Just constantly complaining like, yeah, I signed on to this film four years ago and i thought i'd be finished i thought my commitment would be completed by now but here we are again writing new songs he's just and he was very disturbed by the change in direction of the film which is fascinating to be fair though i think a big part of that is that sting is someone who takes himself very seriously as evidenced by a documentary designed to make him appear to be the most sympathetic person involved like he sting is like kind of a dork but he also has some really great insights through the process, as evidenced by the note you mentioned earlier. And the one song of his that's actually in the movie, I'm not counting the end credits song, but the one song that he wrote, it doesn't sound a thing like Sting. He he says at some point that he does like the idea of being a journeyman and like getting other people's ideas out and doing this, like scoring a movie and writing songs for characters that aren't Sting. And yeah, that's he not, calls it therapy. Yeah, that's not a thing that I would have uh, thought Sting would want to do. And he's never done it again. It doesn't seem like he felt he had a great time in this process and made it a <laughs> made it a habit yeah. to score animated movies. But yeah, I love that song. I mean, and it's interesting because they 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 pitch it to him. You see the animators; they come to London and they're like, "Here's the new idea for the movie." This is what we think the opening song could be. It's called Perfect World. It's got this this arc to it and this kind of like mirror thing at the beginning and the end of the movie. And then uh Sting and his and his writing partner D- David something Dan something? D- 
David something. He's it's, a funny David guy in the documentary. It's fine. He looks like Patton Oswalt at a at an angle. Yeah. Yeah, he's Pat he's he's British Patton Oswalt and uh that song's a fucking banger. And they get t- Tom Jones in there to belt it out. What a way to open a movie. Well, well, watching the, the movie this Cusco. so good. Watching the movie today, I was like, oh, and there's a really sly lyric where there's yeah, they're talking about despots and dictators and idiot bureaucrats. And the 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 lyric, which they kind of it's fascinating, they do definitely like mix it down a little bit, it gets lost a little bit in the movie. But the lyric is like they'd be better suited swinging from a tree. <laughs> which you could take as that they're have the intellect of of monkeys, or you could definitely take as <laughs> they should be hung or hanged rather. And uh, a lot again, a lot of stuff snuck into this movie that uh, is just very surprising. Oh, I do. I just want to add that in this redraft that they did, the person that they had in mind for Cusco to like map sort of like the, the character onto was Trump. They were like, "What if we put Duh. Trump in Oklahoma, but it's Peru?" It's like medieval Peru. Really misguided. There are so many movies you hear where they were like, we modeled the 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 villain, the like corporate evil villain on Trump. And it's like, it is just wild that he has been America's number one villain for 40 years. In this movie, though, I think it, in those, I actually, I totally get it as a, as a cultural reference. But in this movie, for it to be this Trumpian character who then is kind of redeemed, I think, ugh. It's better to, I think Spade, I think, I mean, they, they design him, he's apparently supposed to be 17. When I was a kid, I just, <laughs> when you're a kid, everybody is just 35. <laughs> like, I, everybody's just an adult. Yeah. Uh, a nondescript adult. And um, uh, so I never really saw him as an adolescent, really. But they do a good, I mean, he is hil- hil- hilariously dickish at the beginning. And then they do the <laughs> They put him on a great little journey, and Spade delivers a great voice performance. Honestly, there is not a weak link in this voice cast. Uh, Wendy Malick swoops in for a couple scenes, great as Potch's wife, a nice little yeah. Just Shoot Me reunion there with uh, Spade. Goodman, pre-Monsters, Inc., uh, given a fantastic voice performance here. And again, Eartha Kitt, man, uh, if not for no other reason, watch the sweatbox for the behind the scenes of Eartha Kitt. Oh, my God. Yzma. Yeah. And you see, you as uh, Bethy alluded to, uh, you, you get some glimpses of, I think, two different songs. I think you get some glimpses of her original villain song, and then you get some glimpses of, I guess, a verse. It's a verse that fits into the Perfect World Kuzco song at the beginning that's about her, which was cut from the movie. But you get some of her singing... Um, and she's just fucking great. She is just belting it out. Yeah, the reason that we're recording this episode is ultimately because I think Eartha Kitt's voice performance in this movie is so instantly iconic. And it is essentially Eartha Kitt, but it's also like, it becomes something magical. It's the voice of Yzma. It's so immediately recognizable. But I talked about that in our Ernest Scared Stupid episode and how that was one of my favorite Eartha right. Kid appearances in cinema and neither Riley nor Bethy had seen it. And so I'm so glad that now we're all on the same page. Yeah. I love that. This is a podcast where we're going to see like every movie Eartha Kid has been in at some point. Like we're going to do Batman. We're going to do Harriet the spy. We're going to do the episode of again, the nanny where she's uh, singing in a nightclub and, and she says, I have a nanny too. And then she waves at a little boy toy and it's the fucking best. 
I love her. Eartha Kitt with a boy toy is, it doesn't get better than that. That's a surefire winner. Also, Eartha Kitt was like really fucking old when they made this movie for a person delivering this sort of voice performance. But when you watch the sweatbox, she has such an incredible youthful energy. She's so engaged about the character and its various iterations. And she just seems like such a good sport and so cool. They keep showing her teaching a dance yeah. class. Oh, yeah. Apparently she would do stretches where she kicked her leg all the way up over her head before recording. <laughs> that was part of her warm-up was to do like a high kick. Oh, my God. Um, I, I, know we're, I know we're jumping around a lot, but that's what happens when you talk about movies at the bar. I would really yeah. like to talk about what I think is the best sequence in this whole movie and, and one of the funnier comedic sequences... I mean, there have been a lot put to film, so I think it's definitely one of the funniest. Just <laughs> There's been a lot of comedy over the just years. Just as a numbers game, don't push back on this, but the, the diner scene is yeah. incredible. So Cusco and Pacha are on the road. They decide to stop to eat. Cusco knows he's in danger, and so he is dressed, he is a llama dressed as a woman. Pacha's really happy with the disguise, thinks he looks really convincing. They're having a really lovely meal together. And then Yzma and Kronk, uh, who are out looking for them on the road, sit down in a booth immediately behind them. And it turns into this really fucking wacky, protracted thing where, like, Cusco and Kronk are near missing each other while going in the kitchen to have conversations with the chef. And there's this revolving door. I, I have a hard time describing this scene other than to say it's like, it's like the Disney version of the Mrs. Doubtfire scene where Robin Williams is changing in and out of the outfit and moving back and forth between the two tables. But it's fucking incredible. It's actually really close to like, I'm not, this is not shade, but it is, it reminds me a lot of my favorite episode of Cheers, which is the one where Woody, it's a two-parter where Woody gets married, and it it also has swinging doors, and the whole, it's a farce, and the whole point of it is setting up that these doors, every time someone comes through these doors, things are going to get harder for everybody. (laughs) like so that once you start to hear that sliding you like your your blood pressure spikes just a little bit because you know that things are going to get a little weirder a little funnier and um and yeah the rhythm of that scene is incredible too like the way that Kronk winds up just being the diner chef because he's not super invested in being an evil henchman (laughs) and the funniest thing about Kronk is that he's not upset about it not for a moment does he consider that he should not be preparing all of the food in the kitchen he's like i got this (laughs) this is there are few that one is one thomas that is one of the great moments in movie history when the chef packs up and leaves very hilariously (laughs) dumping the cauldron into his suitcase (laughs) yeah 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 packing it up and leaving again a very uh as bethy said chuck jonesy type of gag he packs up and leaves Leaving Kronk, the waitress gives him this long order of things that need to be made. And he's going, oh, no, 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 that's not not that's not me. And she says, yeah, you got that, honey? And he just, he waits for a second. He's like, all right, yeah, two, two heartburns of this, of this, of this, and of this. Got it. And he just, like, goes behind the thing. There are a few comedic conceits that I find funnier than a character being put in an absurd situation and then just going... I'm in. I'm into it. Yes. Okay. Let's immediately. Their reality has changed, and Kronk is now the chef. And the the button on that. Obviously, there's this revolving door screwball thing happening. 
But one of the biggest laughs of the movie for me is after Kronk has been, you know, conscripted into service as the the short order cook, Yzma comes back and uh, is like, Kronk, can I change my fries to a salad? And he goes, I'll have to charge you full price. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, oh, fine. <laughs> well, I was like, immediately they've just adopted this new reality and it's it's just fucking hilarious the thing the thing in this movie that stuck with me most as a kid and really got me this time is just a david spade line delivery at the end of a run but isma walks in and she goes uh i'll have a salad but no cheese and then cusco comes in and he goes i'll have cheese and she walks in, and, she, and, and and Kronk's acknowledging. He's like, okay, I'll put cheese on it. And Yzma goes, no, I said no cheese. And then Cusco comes in and wants cheese. And it's just, it goes on for so long, back and forth. It kills me. And at one point, Cusco just walks in and says, cheese, me no likey. And that was something that just is in my brain for the rest of my life because I saw it at a really impressionable age. Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot of lines that have stuck with me uh from this movie. I mean, I, I I think when I was a kid, I think maybe the 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 height of comedy that I had ever seen were the uh shoulder angel and devil gags. Oh yeah. And honest to God, maybe one of the best jokes I've ever seen in a movie or television show is when the angels and the devils pop up on Kronk's shoulders <laughs> and they're trying to convince him to either let Cusco, who has been turned into a llama, has been put and knocked out and put into a burlap sack and is gonna go over this this waterfall in the city and plunged to his death. And Kronk is having second thoughts because he's just a big, sweet dummy. And the the angel and the devil are trying to convince him to either let him die or to, or to go save him. Uh, and the devil uh, shoulder thing says, he's given the reasons why he, he should listen to him. And he goes, uh, reason number two, look what I can do. And he does a one-handed handstand. <laughs> and Kronk says, uh, I don't see how that, and the angel goes, no, no, no. He's got a point. <laughs> Honest to God, that's one of the funniest jokes I've ever seen in anything. I, I, I would love to know who was in the punch-up room on this movie. Do we know? I didn't read the oral history. Do we know who was in the room? Yeah. What Was it this, like, murderer's row with fucking Patton Oswalt and, you know, all those people at that time? I don't think or... it was Pat. I don't know. I don't know who was at the... Um punch-up room there's just so many fucking good jokes in this thing it's and it's 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 crazy this is uh, thomas i'm with you it is the funniest disney movie it it might be the funniest studio animated movie i don't know other than like the south park movie i don't know this is like there is a joke in at least two jokes in every scene of this movie that i don't only laugh at i am impressed by yeah, when when I was watching it, I found myself not just smiling, watching it alone on my TV with headphones on. I was, like, wheezing at jokes. Like, there was stuff that just totally caught me off guard. And, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, you were talking about how this movie has throwaway jokes in a way that Disney movies do not have and a lot of animated movies don't have. And that's the stuff, by and large, that really kills me. Like, there are these great centerpiece jokes, but it's just these throwaway lines that have me in stitches. So I don't have a full list of the punch-up room, but I know that one of the main writers who was like part of the way that they did the the recording is that they would have one guy in the booth and then one guy writing things and like handing up lines to the to like tell Spade to say this, tell Warburton to say this. Uh, one of those guys was David Reynolds, who was one of the original Late Night with Conan O'Brien writers. So that's probably 
that's part of why that is it. <laughs> yeah. the, the fucking tv show that formed my sense of humor more than anything was late night with conan o'brien and uh, it, it makes all the sense in the world that they share uh dna with wait but i also believe per the sweat box and also the reading i did that david maybe pitched the initial idea for this being kind of like a kooky like road movie um in that bake-off period i think that could could yeah someone named reynolds is is credited with the screenplay i yeah i think i think is that him yeah i think so yeah they it was it was kind of contentious because people who wanted the movie to go in another direction couldn't believe that he just sort of like pitched that idea on the fly in the room, but that was the one the execs liked. And it is, I don't want to give them credit, but it is a testament to the judgment of those executives that they realized that this was maybe the most viable version of the movie at that time, given the timeline, and then... This is what came of that. But also it makes sense that the late night guy would be the one who can pitch on the fly and also sell something in the room and also can come up with like, okay, we're throwing everything away. New ideas now. And he's like, oh, I can do that. I've done new ideas now for, you know, five years of my life when when I was doing late night and never slept. I can just not sleep again. That sounds fine. Right. It, and those other guys, the the other Disney filmmakers, writers, animators are incredibly talented. But when you listen to them talk about their process in the sweat box, they talk about how for two months at a time, all they're focusing on is figuring out what a particular character's ticks are and what their motivations are. Like these guys move slowly and they come up with very good ideas, but they don't have, you know, the skill set that David has, which is just to be like, uh, here's something fucking funny that I think is a movie. Like a... Uh... Later in the pitching process, they were trying to figure out how they had gotten to the part where Yzma is a cat and she falls. And they're like, how do we make it so Yzma doesn't die? And and they're like, uh, one of the writers is like, I've been in rooms where you pitch something crazy just to like get the ball rolling. And then you go, that's funny. What are we actually going to do? So to get the ball rolling, he pitched, there's a trampoline salesman and... <laughs> The cat bounces off the trampoline and then they catch it. And they said, that's funny. And then the part where someone says, what are we actually going to put in the script? That part just never happened. They just went with trampoline salesman and then moved on. (laughs) But in this case, that works Mm -hmm. so well. And that fucking exchange is so funny when he walks out and he goes, look, man, for the last time, we did not order a giant trampoline. (laughs) And then the trampoline salesman goes, look, buddy, you could have told me that before I set the thing up. And then the cat (laughs) impacts and flies back up. And And that is a classic comedy tradition. I mean, speaking of Eartha Kitt, a lot of the jokes in this movie remind me of my other formative comedy thing, which is the, the 60s Batman show and movie. Which has a similar, the 60s Batman movie has a kind of similar gag where the helicopter is in free fall. The uh, <laughs> Batcopter is in free fall. And then everything is spinning and then it stabilizes. And, and the helicopter has crash landed on top of a pile of foam uh, rubber mattresses. And there's a big sign that says foam rubber wholesalers convention. <laughs> <laughs> And they're walking away, and Adam Adam West says something effective like, you know, he's like, yeah, we're, you know, fate has saved us, or fate stepped into whatever. He's like, but I, I did think I saw that sign for the wholesalers convention out of the corner of my eye. It's like, that is, like, there's some very, there are some jokes like that in this movie that, um, 
I don't even know what style of comedy that is because it's not totally non sequiturs, but it is this, this exists in a wacky universe that that rides a perfect line where it is not so wacky that you do not care about the emotional lives of the characters in the arc, the story that they're going on, but you will accept pretty much anything. And it's set up from the very first moments where Cusco is narrating his own story and it is this sort of fourth wall breaking self-referential thing where he's like oh let's go back to the beginning goes to a baby he's like oh that's too far let's go forward and there's these <laughs> moments where he he pauses the movie or he'll you know whatever he talks to himself at at, at some point and uh, uh there's a kind of alchemy to that to to be able to have exist in that comedic universe but not have the emotional stakes feel completely frivolous uh and, and that is what surprised me most this time watching the movie the the way that Pacha and Kuzco are calibrated is 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 really interesting and then Pacha's family is fantastic and you really do there's a lot of heart in this movie uh which is fantastic considering that they only focus on the heart you know once every 12 minutes in a right. 78 minute movie it is still really effective by the time you get to the end which it, is uh which is the real magic of this movie it's also a 78 minute movie with credits it's a it's a movie that moves at a fucking clip mm-hmm. but but bethy mentioning the isma cat stuff i really would like to talk about the action climax of the movie which i think is incredibly well staged and like all of the things i like most about this movie don't feel overcooked it feels like what Bethy's describing with the, the trampoline pitch idea, like they just sort of had something and they ran with it. But the juggling of vials and transforming into different animals is a really incredible set piece. It's so fun to watch. When I was a kid, you know, I thought it was just like, oh, this is really whimsical. This is cool. I didn't think too much about it. I was, I, I don't know, I must have yeah. been dumb. But watching it now, I was like, this is really inventive and I'm having a blast Cusco turning into a whale and crashing into the water below. <laughs> Don't it's, say anything. Yeah, yeah. It's all of that is so. Oh, I'm a llama again. Yeah, I didn't even remember that going into this, and I was like, oh, this is this is an incredible third act of the movie. And that's the part that's honestly the most classically Disney because it kind of harkens back to the wizard off from uh, the Sword in the Stone, right? Where Merlin and Madame Mim have a shapeshifter off to try and figure out who is actually the best spellcaster and it has that same like as long as they're color coded we're gonna know who is who and i think that's a that's a fun conceit oh man the other part that i thought that reminded me of like something that like i really clicked with with disney movies as a kid it, it's just like a brief moment Cusco like negs all of these women who are like potentially gonna be his bride <laughs> no, yeah. but the design on them there was something about like Ariel's sisters or the muses, identical ladies with different hairdos that are going to be spun off into merchandise is my shit. <laughs> I love them. Oh, and the the gals from uh the like the bimbets or whatever they're called from Beauty and the Beast. I love I oh, love yeah. Disney oh, identical yeah, they're, women. They're, they're, I'm yeah. obsessed with Disney identical women. <laughs> There's something about them that I find fascinating. Don't love your hair. It's it, it's it, 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 even that scene where he's just establishing that he's a petty asshole. Like the the, the lines are hilarious. I, going back quickly to the the final act of the movie. I know I've said this nine times now, but maybe the best joke in the movie. <laughs> 
Atticus is when all of the big scary henchmen come charging out and Pacha knocks over a uh, table full of potions and they all get turned into various farm animals. Oh, yes. And an octopus. And the one guy's... <laughs> And an octopus. And the one guy says, uh, I've been turned into a cow. Can I go home? And he says, y- you're excused. Anyone else? And the rest of them go, no, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's it's such an absurd joke. And, and the way they all look at their bodies and are kind of unfazed, they're like, oh, this is just our line of work, you know? But And that is that Saturday Night Live, uh, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, that is that tradition of joke writing. And those are, you can tell, they are, they're not, you know, classic Disney movies. Uh, you know, and, and it became in vogue to bring in stand-ups or whatever to do punch-up starting in, you know, what, the late 70s, early 80s. But, like, those classic Disney movies, there's funny stuff, but it is just the animators who are, they're funny guys, or the screenwriters who are, like, funny guys. And they're not, thinking about joke jokes first and foremost but you bring in these these writers who are so steeped in this joke writing tradition it is it's not you know they know that it is not the first joke it is the build on the joke the second part the third part that really sells it and gets really funny and and, and this is the only disney movie that has uh jokes that that build to those points that have these like this movie has four or five great callbacks like this is uh truly a comedian movie in a way that none other is and i wonder if that confounded people like i I am curious what the reason is why this was not a big hit if it was maybe it came out right at the same time or this is before shrek as bethy said so that it was after a couple of riffs after three pixar movies it was after what the two the two first two toy stories and um bug's life Mm-hmm. predated this movie i mean obviously that era traditional 2d animation which the 2d animation this movie is gorgeous i love the aesthetic of this movie i think yeah. the style is so fun it did remind me a lot of hercules watching it which is not a connection sure. i made as a kid but there are a lot of similar designs absolutely uh and and just <clears throat> unbusy frames that's that's what i miss about animated movies when they used to have these beautifully designed background cells uh, and then they would focus the action on the main characters and have really carefully composed scenes with a, with a couple of points of interest in them. And now you have something like Ralph Lake breaks the internet and there's nine million things in every frame. And it's just visual overload. I, 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 I miss that era when things were more um, specific. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious. I mean, it's 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 the first, you know, non-musical after this string of musicals. Uh, and it almost sets up like you think it's going to be a musical because it opens with this great number. And then it's just there isn't another song until the end credits. Like, I, 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 I'm I, curious what audiences didn't lock into with this movie at the time. I do think it, it a lot of it probably has to be marketing. And I wish that I had yeah. done more research on that going into this. I mean, there's the bit with the sweat box where, like, uh, the the marketing head is talking about the materials and he's like... Yeah, if people see the Emperor's New Groove, and then they see the llama, they're going to be like, I don't know, I don't really know what that is. There's a dissonance here. And I don't I don't know that they perfectly threaded the needle, because it, it, I don't think the word of mouth was bad. I think people just weren't enticed to see it from the jump. I mean, it's still, it made $170 million. It's not like no one saw it, but... Yeah, right. it opened poorly, but then it built from what I read, that it opened at $9 million, and I think domestic was 90 by the time it was done. It opened at 9 Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. 
And then I ran all over town telling people how good it was. Yeah, it was Clay. You did it. And bit bit by bit, they we 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 got it up to ninety. It was the best-selling DVD, though, the year it was released by a comical margin. By the time it came out on home video, it was right. it had an incredible reputation, but there was something they fucked up with theatrical. I, speaking as somebody who said no to seeing this movie at the time, right. I, can, right. I can give my first-person experience of not wanting to see The Emperor's New Groove. And it was, for me, it was because the trailer had that, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. Every time, and I was like, "Oh, oh it- I feel like I know what this is going to be, and I'm, I'm okay. No, thank you. <laughs> I think I was like a little tired of Spade. That is, that's a, that's a Spaderism. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of sp- Spader. I just did an episode talking about James <laughs> Spader. It, there is a, um, that's a Spadeism. There's a couple. There's a, there is a couple bits like where he goes like, ah, no touchy, no, 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 no likey. No, no, like he, well, not the cheese thing, but like someone touches him. That works really well in context, but as a trailer moment, I think it would annoy so, me. So like he gets touched in the beginning part and goes like, oh, no touchy, me no, 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 no touchy. And it's, um, there's some, and the, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. It, it does seem a little bit, um, bratish, uh, and a little bit childish. Although I will say in the same trailer, the key moment in that same trailer is when they are strapped to the log approaching the waterfall. And John Goodman says, "Uh-oh!" And Spade has his. Let me guess. Like, 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 yeah. Let me guess. We're we're approaching a giant waterfall. We're gonna plunge to our deaths. He's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Bring it on!" Like that is the line that sold me when he says, "Bring it on!" And then they fall over the water. I liked good. that in the in the moment. Oh, the other thing that turned me off of the trailer is that it used "Hey Pachuco" by the Royal Crown Review as the trailer music, which had just been used in. I don't even know. That's that. the. That song. Oh, okay. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, It was. It's in the mask, and then it was used in the trailer for this. It was used. It was used in like a bunch of trailers. I feel like it was used in the George the Jungle trailer when it wasn't the George George (laughs) George of the Jungle. Uh, And it's, I think, still used in like Father's Day or like Memorial Day sales for like khakis at like kmart <laughs> it's like we've got grills uh-huh. and pants bow, 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 bow. And, and i think that i had just uh my heart had had chilled towards the royal crown review at the time <laughs> that's a sentence i've never heard <laughs> <laughs> bethy uh when you were watching the sweat box and they were working on the final version of the movie and they decided that their larger environmental designs were going to be a quote-unquote incan version of las vegas did that touch your heart i went oh yeah i see what you mean it didn't touch my heart but i did i did pick up what they were putting down and then when they got tom jones it's like oh yeah because of the vegas oh, yeah, i get it that's nice yeah bethy would it be fair to describe you to the listeners as a, a Vegas head? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Big time. Big time Vegas head over here. That I I really felt that in the sweatbox when Sting's friend went to Vegas <laughs> uh, and was just like, look like- My new friend uh, Tom sh- Jones. Sh- yeah, sh- shooting some, some camcorder footage and hanging out with Tom Jones and having a good time. I love Tom Jones's sort of like, yeah, all right, spirit that he had in the late 90s. This was around the same time that he had his uh, covers album that like did okay at the <laughs> time. That had, 
his, his version of Sex Bomb, which became like the theme song for a, TV, a one season wonder that I really liked at the time. But then he also did this cover of Burning Down the House with the Cranberries. The Cardigans. So it's it's him and the Cardigans singing <laughs> Talking Heads song. <laughs> And it's my favorite fucking song in the world. That, to me, sounds like a recipe for disaster, but uh, I don't purport to know anything. Fight fire with fire! It's so good. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. The music video is also incredible, too. (laughs) Because it has, like, weird robot guys. It's sort of, it, it feels like it's in the same like futurist apartment that the Christina Aguilera come on over video is in. Like they just okay. borrowed her house for the day. All right. You just won me back over. <laughs> My house. I'm one over as well. I'm completely one over. I mean, uh, mm. Bethy, it seems like you liked this. W- w- give us a star rating. Cause I was really hoping we would open this and you were going to be like, uh, Clay, you've changed my life. <laughs> I, 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 you know, had no direction before this. I, I felt like there was something missing and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was the Emperor's New Groove. It sounds like you liked it, but are, we're not uh, uh, completely bowled over. I mean, what, what what were your general, we've been talking about particular moments, but overall, like, what, what what is your star rating? How do you feel about this movie in, in a grand scope? If we're talking out of five, honestly, and I'm sorry, but it's a three and a half. I had a nice time. I had a very nice time. I think 7 out of 10 is a glowing rating for a distinguished sure. film critic. <laughs> Bethy is, Bethy is uh, you're a fresh, you're one of the fresh critics on the tomato meter, right? Mm, yes, I am one of the arbiters of taste for tomatoes. Bethy's approved. I tell tomatoes. I like Thomas's, <laughs> I like Thomas's characterization of the tomato meter approved critics as the fresh critics. <laughs> Which implies the existence of some sort of, like, evil squadron of rotten critics. Movie Bob. <laughs> I hate every movie. Critic. I hate movies. It's just Wario being like, I want it stinkier. <laughs> Do you think Movie Bob sounds like Wario? <laughs> There's no way he's listening to this podcast. I don't know who that is. People like... Yeah. People like... Pete Hammond has a doppelganger named Meat Shaman who hates every movie. Uh. Yeah, Movie Bob won't be a guest on this podcast. I like to forget about Movie Bob. Movie Bob doesn't come up as often as you think he would. He he goes away enough that I can forget about him entirely. And then today he came back and I was like, oh, yeah. My, right. my friend Matt, who is like sleeper, funniest person on Twitter, tweeted, E fartlow GF, Movie Bob BF today. <laughs> I literally like couldn't stop laughing, and I retweeted it, and then I realized Movie Bob follows me, <laughs> but I don't follow Movie Bob, so I don't know. I'll check again to see if hours after that retweet, he still follows me. Yeah, don't don't uh, risk your social media relationship with Movie Bob. Thomas. I feel like Movie Bob's new groove is unfollowing handsome underscore pal. I think that would be a good move for everybody. <laughs> One of the great moments in the sweatbox is when <laughs> they go to London after they've reconceptualized the movie and Sting goes, uh, so what's the new title then? And they're like, The Emperor's New Groove. And he goes, oh, that's 
kind of bad. And they're like, what? He's like, I already knew that. He's like, wait, what? <laughs> he just he just wanted them to say it to him. Yeah. He has this whole, like, diabolical scheme to embarrass them in the movie. Okay, but Kingdom of the Sun fantastic. is also a bad name. Because it's about an it's a very it's bad about name. an emperor, so he has an empire, but they couldn't call it Empire of the Sun because that's already a Christian Bale movie, right? Well, it's a Steven Spielberg movie that is Starring actually a young Christian Bale, right? It's right, a Christian Bale. It's a Christian Bale. Uh, I, I I actually like Empire of the Sun a lot, but uh, I think Empire of the Sun's pretty good. Yeah, I think the Emperor's New Groove with distance viewed through the prism of legacy is a pretty good name for a movie it's pretty specific it certainly fits the movie it seems like the emperor's new clothes plus how stella got her groove which is what the movie is 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 how they arrived at that yeah which is true that's perfect for that yeah and even sting comes around he says once he thought about it some more so if rotten tomatoes were just three critics the three most important critics in America. I'm talking Bethy <laughs> right. Squires. Uh, I'm talking Clay Keller. I'm talking um, at handsome underscore pal. What is the what is the average of our letterbox star ratings? Clay, are you a five? I'm at a four and a half. I I, I my letterboxed uh, you know output is is I I do a lot of three and a half. I do quite a few fours. There, I only have like my ten favorite movies of all time have fives pretty much, uh, you know, mostly between three and and four is where I'm given scores. Just because I know how hard it is to look, I've seen the Sweatbox. I know how hard it is to make a movie, uh, so I feel bad giving anything down in like a one and one and a half. You know, it just it doesn't sit right with me. Um, so that's mainly I for this one. I gave it. Uh, a four and a half. All right. So with Clay's nine out of ten, with my nine out of ten, with Bethy's seven mm-hmm. out of ten, we're looking at eighty-five percent certified fresh. That's a good movie. That sounds right to me. That feels right. Eighty-five percent certified fresh. Can we get it? I'm I'm gonna try and get an extra half star out of Bethy by reminding her of this joke from the movie, <laughs> which is when they're at <laughs> when when they're at the end and Yzma says, I bet you weren't expecting this. And she yanks up her dress and they go, oh, no, no. And they turn away and she just has a gigantic dagger and they say, oh, OK, that's fine. I mean, come on. Come on. In a, in a G-rated Disney movie. That one just made me a little sad because it was like, oh, no, old pussy. We hate it. Uh so that I found, I actually, that one made me go, eh, come on, guys. But I'll give. I think it's just, I think it's just pussy in a just Disney movie. Pussy <laughs> Disney movie. I think, yeah, I'm possibly overthinking it. I will say that uh, I really like the moment um, when we first meet Pacha's family. Like, they, they communicate really well, like, how important this place is to him when they compare his son's mark on the door. Like, they're doing, they're measuring each other on the door, and he's able to compare his son's to himself at the same age like they have both of those marks on the frame of the door and it's like oh no yeah now i'm gonna cry and there's like 40 more minutes of movie left that's like when i measure tuba my cat um he's he's actually shorter than i ever was standing at his tallest and i got i got (laughs) he's got a long way to go for that i gotta protect him but i I have to issue a, a correction so that i don't have to do this later on twitter (laughs) <laughs> I average these incorrectly. 
our aggregate fresh critic score is actually 83.3 percent not 85 i'll give it another uh 2.7 devastating Percent? All right. What about this? What about this joke, Bethy? When they're in that scene with the family <laughs> that you like so much, Clay, I love that we're in, in movie math now. You're like, all right, what joke can tip Bethy over the line? <laughs> when the and the the family traps Isma and Kronk in the closet, and Isma says, "Tell us where the talking llama is, and we'll burn your house down." <laughs> That's the funniest joke in the movie to me. <laughs> and Kronk really says, good. "Don't you mean or?" She goes, and, but it's not only don't you mean or. That's not where it stops. She goes, oh, fine. <laughs> so it wasn't a mistake what she said the first time. That's what she had meant to She's say. She's acquiescing to Kronk's <laughs> logic, but she fully meant give us the answers. Also, fuck you. But the physical comedy that ensues when the when when what is what is the name of Pacha's partner in the movie? Is it Mata or was that in the original? It's got another CH in oh, it, I yeah. think. Hold Chicha? on. I've got Chicha. Chicha, right. Okay, Chicha. so so Chicha has removed the doorknob to lock them in there, and she's waiting to put it back on. So she waits for Yzma to count down from three. She opens the door, so they put their elbow into the door, and they just go flying down the hill in a wheelbarrow. And Yzma, like, inexplicably replaces a pinata and gets the shit beaten out of her by children. It's like... It's real. not inexplicably. Ch- Ch- Chicha says says to her children, "You know what to do." <laughs> and the, one covers it with and honey. They have and the other one covers it with feathers. Complicated series of traps. Yeah, it's real. Three ninjas, uh, and I say three ninjas, not Home Alone, because it's an ensemble of little little wildcats. Right. right. Absolutely. Speaking of the that when uh, Kronk and Isma are at the house, I have another quote from the thing from from Reynolds, the the late night writer. He says that at one point during the middle of a story meeting, uh, Randy came in and said, okay, Disney ESPN is doing a promotion and they're going to start showing the world double Dutch jump rope competitions. Uh, So if you could work jump roping into the movie, that would be fantastic. And we're like, yeah, no problem. (laughs) They walk out. That's incredible. (laughs) So that's why Kronk is jump roping is because they were like, can you please like, can you please make jump roping look cool so that we can use a clip of it for when we're doing ESPN promo for the World Jump Roping Championship. When Yzma joins him to to brief him on the plan, and there's like the medium close-up of them jump roping with their heads at perfect <laughs> eye level, it is, it is so funny. And I think it's... Emperor's New Groove is a movie that is so consistently terrific in its bits that you cannot attend to how funny those little moments are, but like that shit is good. As we're talking about this, I'm like, oh, in this world where a lot of my friends are vaccinated, I want to have friends over to watch this movie because it feels like a fun movie to watch with people and to do big laughs. It it does. I, I did some big laughs just sitting alone, but it is what I would love to do some big laughs. And it made me think, I mean, my first thought these days is always like, God, I'd love to see this in rep. And then, of course, when you realize it's a Disney movie, you're like, well, unless they show this at fucking El Capitan <laughs> right. at some point, uh, I'm never going to see this on the big screen again. But I will keep an eye. I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye out because they do do they do do some rep at El Capitan. So that 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 might that might come could come around. I saw a goofy movie there a few years ago, so it happens. Uh, so there's hope. Yeah, and like, there's hope. TikTok is really vibing with this movie like half of the movie is tiktok sounds at this point so i think <laughs> once 
any executive figures out how to use that app, they'll find out that there's actually demand for a rep screening. So, so Bethy, I always like when I have a a TikTok correspondent present. Uh, <laughs> I thought you so were going to pitch can... her one more joke to try to up her letterbox <laughs> so grading. Hear... I've got a couple more that I'm saving for later. Um, but <laughs> but uh, uh, so the Zoomers are are discovering this that this film. Then. Oh yeah, it's a, 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 huge. A, a, a film that came out before they were born. Yeah, but as you said, it was or as Thomas said, it was huge for DVD sales, and then I think was huge for rentals and now on Disney Plus like it's big yeah. with people younger than us. And it did. There was a a Crocs New Groove movie and then there was an I believe the television series on Disney Channel was called The Emperor's New School yeah. where they they all became teachers at a school or something. I never watched it, but that is what it's called. Yeah, yeah. So it exists. Uh Bethy, your anecdote about ESPN reminded me of something I saw when I was watching it today and this is complete conjecture but Bethy, i know you're a fan of uh the podcast podcast the I think ride I know what you're gonna say. and they were t- they were talking about a uh the parade that replaced the electrical yeah. light parade uh that was a major disaster had this whole th- uh r- r- river dance theme that came down on high from michael eisner because he saw river dance and was like oh river dance is the best thing in the world that's the new that's the new hotness there is a river dance bit in this movie that I had never made note of before. But yeah, during the opening Perfect World Cusco song, there is an extended bit where they all just start doing river dance for a while. And I have to imagine that was an Eisner note. That was a that was a classic Eisner Clay, note. Clay, in my notes, it just says Eisner loves river dance. <laughs> the big underline. I got to tell you guys what I just did while we were live recording. I went to my letterbox profile and I changed my rating from a 9 out of 10 to a 10 out of 10. I, I felt really Oh shit. I felt really convicted this morning when Chad Hardigan responded to my review and just said masterpiece period. And I've been thinking about it all day. I'm willing to be on the right side of history with the Emperor's New Groove. And honestly Thomas, that that that, I, that I'm so relieved because I can save my uh, re- recounting of the bit of the movie where Kronk does his own theme music for another day. I <laughs> Which need to bust that out. pitched. That was his idea. <laughs> Duh. The guy walks in front of him. <laughs> Wait, oh, sorry. So I, good. I, I know that all night we've been talking about the best joke in the movie, and there have been 14 of those, which we're certain are the best joke in the movie, respectively. But Kronk has the line after the diner scene where it's like, they've all been in immediate orbit. There's no reason they shouldn't have seen Cusco and Patra, but they don't. Um, and, and they're at their tent a few hours later, and Kronk wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes, The peasant! At the diner. And as a viewer, you're like, Kronk's had the realization, something in his subconscious registered, he spotted Cusco. But but the next line is, the peasant at the diner, he forgot to pay his check. <laughs> and I think about it all the time. That's <laughs> a really funny line of dialogue. And, and the style to match. The, the like dramatic punch in. I mean, there is a there is a stylistic looseness to this movie. That did not is not part of the Disney tradition. That uh, just gives all of it that it's got that heightened energy, that heightened sense, uh, and and really makes it stand apart. Which is in some ways, I mean, obviously that's what makes the movie special. In some ways, it is um, a little bit. I, I'm sure it is the reason why this movie 
uh, does not have representation really much at all in the parks, you know, in kind of the grander Disney scheme because it just doesn't fit. It, it is an outlier. It's like a, it's a weird cousin to these other movies. And it's it's too bad because I do think this is one of one of their better one of their better films. It is strange, though, because, you know, there are other movies that don't necessarily fit in the same way. Like some of the character designs, honestly, for like a lot of the the humans in this movie look very Lilo and Stitch to me. And like that movie mm-hmm. also doesn't really fit with the rest of the Disney canon because it's about like the, the, the center family has like darker shit going on than you'd usually find in a Disney movie. You don't see uh, <laughs> child services in Disney movies. It just doesn't happen. But for some reason, they went all in on Stitch in a way that they didn't go all in with, like, David Spade Llama. They could have easily made him, like, they could, in the same way that they TP'd uh, Cinderella's castle and said Stitch is king on right. it to, like, promote Lilo and Stitch, they could have had a... <laughs> Cusco llama like walk around character claiming that it was his castle now and they put like giant Inca heads like on the finials or something but they just uh, didn't they do that they could have done that they could have turned it into Cusco Tokyo yeah 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 but I wonder if it's because because he is not for most of the movie a character that you want to uh identify with or emulate he he is he's really is uh kind of a scheming asshole until the last eight minutes of the movie. Right. So I wonder if there was a concerted effort to be like, this is not a warm and fuzzy character. We don't want to make a bunch of plush dolls of this guy. If that was a conscious choice or if they just, there was some indication to them that this, that these were characters that were not as marketable as their other characters uh, or I, yeah, or, or this movie didn't play as well. And cause Disney is all about demographics. Like, I wonder if they had some research that said these characters, you know, these male characters don't play as well with little girls who are the ones that buy the plush, you know, things. And that's where, so we're not going to do it. Like all of Disney's decisions are, are, are motivated by that very like gender, uh, binary, like re research that they do. So I'm I'm curious if there is something there that me, that made them kind of back away from going all in on merchandising for this stuff. I don't think this explains merchandising, but I was reading in Disney War that the movie that year that Michael Eisner put all of the money into promoting was Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I was like, that's the one that's going to be our Oscar Touchstone's first Oscar, baby, count it. And and so that's where the money was going, and the company was to go dot com, and <laughs> Pearl Harbor. Michael, come on, man. Hello. That explains all of the uh, Ben Affleck walk around characters at <laughs> Disneyland that summer. All of those like sweaty World War II pilots walking around. <laughs> yeah, those guys rock. They really uh, amplify the the park experience. Kate Beckinsale's uh, nurse is one of the Disney princesses, right? Yeah, she was in the the royal theater that they've turned into a meet and greet space where you can do distanced <laughs> photos with the various princesses. There, there, there's like a vintage like B fifty two bomber behind. Yeah, it. it's just her, Jessica Rabbit, uh, Bette Midler in <laughs> Down and Out in Beverly Hills. All your faves, all the princesses, all your faves. 
I'm so glad the parks are open again. Get those characters walking around. They look weird. Look, Kate Beckinsale, actually, uh, it, the uh, surgical mask fits perfectly for her character. <laughs> all right, guys. With all this Kate Beckinsale love, we're going to have to bring Clay back for one of those Underworld uh... movies. But, uh... Oh, man. She's in those, Already... right? I'm not fucking this up. Oh, she's in those. Yes, Kate Beckinsale is, is the star. She is those she is Celine, the main character in the Underworld. Films. Clay has a Rise of the Lycans tattoo on his chest, which is something that does not lend itself to podcasts. Which is but, uh... surprising because it's the only one that Kate Beckinsale <laughs> is not in. But yes, it's uh, Michael Sheen having uh, cliff sex. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that movie. Michael Sheen uh, has what can only be described as cliff sex uh, at the edge of a cliff. I was say, and it is, is that... one of the. Is that when you... It's, no, it's not sex with a guy named Cliff. It is... I thought it was sex with a rock Heterosexual sex. It was like putting, putting no, no, it he in is, a hole in the side of the mountain. He is... Uh, in, he's enjoying... Uh, he's enjoying carnal uh, knowledge with, with a female character. Uh, but on uh, the edge of a cliff where his entire back is just hanging off the edge of a, of, of a many, many hundred foot cliff. And he sticks his arms out like Christ and screams. Uh, and it is... When he comes? Ecstatic cinema. It is ecstatic cinema. Michael's... <laughs> have, you not, Michael's have neither of you seen this movie? Gonna now. No, but we're going to watch it before you come on next to discuss oh, it. Michael Sheen as the fucking uh, like werewolf prince or whatever in those movies is just one of the greatest things. Or he's, is he a vampire? He's no, a vampire, he's a in, vampire Twilight. in Twilight. He is a lichen in Underworld, but he, he has is the range, essentially the damn. same character. That is just a flashback movie that is, it's like Game of Thrones crossed with a hammer horror film uh, starring Michael Sheen as a werewolf, and it's nuts. Clay, thank you What's so up? much we for done? joining it's us tonight. It's been two hours. We've barely <laughs> talked about the sweat box. Yeah, no, we're going to have to do a companion piece for the patrons in four or five years when we've got those. But um, Clay, this has been amazing. If if people want to find you online, if they want to check out screen drafts, hit us with those handles. Sure, yeah. I'm at Clay Keller on everything. Um, my podcast, Screen Drafts, which I co-host uh, with a guy named Ryan Marker, uh, who Hi, um, me. Bethy does <laughs> an incredible impression of, is on all of the podcast places. Uh, both Thomas and Bethy have been on the show. Uh, their episodes are great, uh, all of them, and uh, they will be guests again. So if you're a fan of both of them, you uh, just get in the show now, so you'll be prepared. You'll be already be subscribed when the next Thomas and Bethy episodes hit the feed. Uh, Thomas, you said this is going to be ju- early July. Yeah, we're is that right? we're recording this the day before it drops in July. In July, so hot and fresh in the feed. The most fresh episode, I don't know yet, but um, new in the feed will be. Uh, an episode uh, ranking the best buddy action movies with Noah Segan and Baron Vaughn. Uh, and preceding that, I think, is an episode about the best TV continuations, which is TV casts that made the jump to the big screen. So not adaptations of television shows, which is a draft we already did. But Drew McQueenie and Alan Sepinwall coming back from the adaptations episode doing TV continuations, stuff like the Star Trek movies, uh, the Sex and the City movies, uh, South Park, Bigger, Longer, Uncut, things where the original cast made the leap to the big screen, ranking those. So that's some stuff that's uh, fresh in the feed, along with a Natalie Wood draft with our friends Maureen Lee Lanker and Oriana Nudo. So a lot of 
a vast array of different types of ranking games that you can uh, listen to for free. That sounds great. And I, I should, again, pitch to anyone who has gotten through both hours of this podcast. Uh, Screen Drafts is an incredible movie podcast. The format is uh, incredibly addictive and fun to participate in as a listener to imagine how you would draft these films. But I love it. Couldn't recommend it more highly. Uh, but even more important to me than Screen Drafts is my friend, Bethy. Bethy, where can we find you online? I, Bethy Squires, can be found at BethyBSQU on Twitter and Bethy Squires on Instagram. Thomas, where can people find you or find the show? That's a good question. I don't actually know where they can find the show off the top of my head, but you can uh, you can find me on Twitter at handsome underscore pal. We're definitely on Twitter and Instagram. I just uh, on Twitter we're movie bar pod. Yeah, on Twitter we're movie bar pod. Hey, Bethy, where can we find the show? Oh, Bethy, thank you so much for asking. Uh, uh, on Twitter we're movie bar pod, and on Instagram we're movie bar underscore pod. Um, and if you thought that was Bethy talking to herself, not so. That was Ryan Marker talking to <laughs> Bethy, talking back to Ryan Marker. Ryan has been so respectfully quiet this entire time. <laughs> Ryan kept us in check. He hasn't seen it. Just a little, <laughs> just a little church mouse. Uh, we should have had Ryan on here so I could make him watch. The only, this is the reason I started a podcast with Ryan is because it, it gave me power to force him to watch things. And... Uh, this would have been good to force him to watch because I'm sure he has not seen this. I think he would really like it. I think it's something that he would show to his niece, who he talks about a lot on the podcast. Um, I adore That's Ryan. A good way to get him to watch. We're gonna have to come have both of you guys come back and do the show soon. Yeah, anytime. All I do is record podcasts. I love <laughs> being a guest on podcast and hitting the two hour mark and watching the host start to sweat, and I feel like I just sat down <laughs> because. My show is so fucking long. Clay and I recorded uh, a six-hour <laughs> podcast in December last year. Is that right? Yeah. Look, this is the content people crave. <laughs> Six-hour-long podcasts about the filmography of Olivier Assayas. That's what people need. Which got Thomas on a uh, real Heineken run recently that people, the podcast fans have heard the impact of your the podcast from... How many Heinekens he's had. I heard him talk about that while I was on a walk. Actually, I was on a run... Uh, I've never, I haven't run since I was in like seventh grade. I decided to take up running, decided to run nine days in a row. Uh, and then I could barely walk for three weeks. So, um, but when I was still, uh, very foolishly trying to push myself, uh, out there on the pavement, I heard Thomas mention the, uh, Olivia Seas Heineken thing. I did a little fist bump. I just, I like to know that I'm having an impact on people's lives. You're having a huge impact. Uh, Clay's <laughs> on a run. I have the runs and for that reason we gotta put a pin in this we thing we gotta wow. run put that in the segue hall of <laughs> fame holy Bye. shit oh my god <laughs> until next time <laughs> Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins, with show art by Lindsay Farrell, and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. Mm-hmm.